Hey you, thanks for tuning into the Waiting List Podcast. I'm Long Long. I'm Daniel. And I'm Jacqueline. And we are three watch friends with a healthy obsession for watches. So sit back and relax with us while we chat with collectors, industry giants, and share some good vibes. I think those that have followed us on this podcast will know that we've had a big admiration for independent brands for a very long time. And also the special artisans that are involved in making these independent brands, you know, we're great admirers of the, their work and the time and the craftsmanship. And whilst we've had no shortage of Swiss independent watchmakers on the show, I do believe it's the first time we now can say we have an American watchmaker on the show. It's Josh Shapiro, guys. Welcome to the show, Josh. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Thank you so much. Good. So as I did my research for this uh, interview, I read that you're an educator with a bachelor's and master's in history. And I know that you're very passionate about American watchmaking. You know, there's two videos actually of on YouTube of you um, with the Horological Society of New York uh, giving like a, a lecture. So I thought we could start there and work our way through, if you don't mind. Sure, I could just rehash the entire lecture, about three hours. <laughs> no, I'm going to stop you from doing that. Don't worry, I'm just going to skip the boring parts. <laughs> but um, I think, you know, it's always good, you know, watchmaking is very heavily focused on the Swiss, right? Uh, you know, through the marketing and obviously through a lot of the history in, in watchmaking. But, um, you know, now we've got a chance to ask you about American watchmaking. So what was the impact of American watchmaking on the world, you know, when it was like in its heyday? Yeah, so the Americans had a, a huge impact. The Swiss uh, and most of the world, the British as well, had been producing watches using one at a time methods, meaning that uh, when a watchmaker was making an individual component, It'd be one person doing one process at a time. And that one watchmaker would have a pile of parts that he needed to work through. And then a different village would be focusing on a different watch part. And it'd be one watchmaker going through one part, one at a time using handmade uh, methods. And uh, this required a lot of labor, you know, tens of thousands of people in villages in Switzerland or in Great Britain or in France or Germany, just doing one part, one process at a time. And the American system made it so that one operator at one machine could work through thousands of parts at a time and they'd all be identical. In short, the Americans figured out a way of using mechanical machines to do automatic processes and that completely changed manufacturing uh, on a worldwide scale and watchmaking specifically forever the swiss were uh, very resistant to this drastic change in production and they sent a commission to the united states in 1876 and were blown away and they took all these findings back to Switzerland and the Swiss were initially completely opposed to changing their methods. But as soon as they saw that Americans were beginning to dominate 
the marketplace and were producing so many watches of such a high caliber, they switched over. They won't readily admit uh, that this came from the Americans and that whole finding from 1876, which the Horological Society of New York has, the, the document and everything, was completely uh, swept under the carpet for 125 years. <laughs> but uh, it, it was quite impactful, quite impactful. So that's one of the big contributions of American watchmaking was the process. Like Swiss watchmaking wouldn't be where it is. And frankly, it it really influenced other areas of production, like Henry Ford and automobile manufacturing, because uh, watches were the first really complicated mechanical objects to be mass produced for the public. Okay. I can talk about that all day. My apologies. Okay. No, no, no. It's very interesting. And, you know, it's very insightful from somebody that clearly knows what they're talking about. Um, but we talk about that production, that that industrial production. So in terms of the impact, are we talking about, like, is there like figures in terms of how many watches you were some Americans companies were able to produce compared to like a Swiss company? And also what impact did that have on the price of the watch? Yeah, that's a good question. So I mean, prices came down uh, and quality went up. Oh. And if you give me a second, I can actually pull up uh, and give you some figures on the numbers. They're pretty drastic. Let's okay. See. Okay. As he's like looking for the figures, I just want to say like you can clearly tell he had he came from like an education background because <laughs> the way he explains it is so clear. <laughs> and then I'm just like, dude, if he was my teacher, I would have like excelled in history. You say that, but I had all a, I did a, was sleep. I had a skill for making students uh, fall asleep, and uh, I don't know. Okay, let's see. I just sent this for the New York Times. Let's see. Oh, I have it right here. <laughs> so I have this book called The Business of Time. And if anyone's interested in like the history of the business side of watchmaking and how it grew, this book is really tremendous. Okay, so like in 1790, Switzerland made 150,000 watches. Mm -hmm. In 1870, Switzerland made 2,100,000 watches. That was in 1870. Then the Americans started creating their new system and the Americans went from an 1870, 150,000 watches a year to 1.5 million. And then let's see. Yeah. So these are the staggering numbers. In 1890, Switzerland made 5 million watches. The Americans made 1.5 million watches. 24 years later, in 1914, Switzerland made 10,500,000 watches, and the Americans went from 1.5 million to 8.5 million watches. <laughs> so the Americans by 1914 uh, had almost matched uh, the Swiss output, um, and this terrified them. Uh, 
this was really a, a scary moment uh, for the Swiss in their history, the Americans kind of coming out of left field. It'd be, it's very similar to what happened with Japan uh, in the 1970s, sort of the Swiss getting blindsided uh, by Japanese production capabilities and courts movements and just an entire shift in the market. And then once again, the Swiss adapted. They're very, uh, that's why they've been so successful. They've been able to have two humongous major adaptions in their history. Otherwise, they would have disappeared. Great Britain disappeared. Great Britain never adapted the methods that the Americans came out with. And they kept doing these one at a time manual production methods. And they disappeared, uh, unfortunately. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, just have to okay. say, I don't know if it's because Long Long commented on how you present yourself. Uh, we just had a recording prior to this. And I do feel like I'm sitting in online class. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like trying to memorize the numbers as he's like saying them. Yeah. Sorry. I Taking you guys have to be normal watch. You guys went you went deep with a history question right off the bat. So uh <laughs> Yeah. But um, um no, it's not a bad thing. I, yeah. I wanna ask, right? You mentioned about like Henry Ford, who was seen as an innovator with his whole production line, right? Who were the big players in the watch industry that were came up with this innovative like way of making watches? Yeah, there was a Denison who was the the founder of Waltham is often credited uh, for a lot of this. Um, in fact, there's even a an unverified legend that Henry Ford himself walked into the Waltham uh, factory to see how they were making watches. And that's not so strange, frankly. Um, it wouldn't have been like Waltham was keeping its factory top secret. And, you know, already by the 1870s, Waltham was producing lots and lots of watches. So it would have been something that Americans interested in manufacturing would be completely aware of what Waltham and Elgin and Howard were doing. So it's not inconceivable that he would have been influenced by how uh, watches were being produced. Like if you think about it, like pocket watches were like what the iPhone is today. It was like an essential piece of technology, a smartphone, a pocket watch that completely changed your life. Before that, you had no way of telling the time. You had to go inside your house, look at your clock. But when you're out and about, your only gauge for what time it was was where the sun was in the sky. So pocket watches were a dramatic uh, lifestyle change. And the mass production of them meant that everyone could have them. Versus in the 1790s, you have makers like Breguet, where these are like luxury high-end items uh, that only the, the wealthiest and the nobles can afford. Uh, and that completely changed by um, the late uh, 1800s. Okay. Um, so if it was so successful and clearly the Americans were getting a huge like market share in the watchmaking space, why did the American watchmaking die? Or as you put it in your lecture, who murdered American <laughs> watchmaking? Yeah. Um, so 
the 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 Swiss uh, were very aggressive towards worldwide competition of their watches throughout the the early 1900s. They supplied parts to a lot of industries, to France, to Germany, and uh, Swiss watchmaking companies and the Swiss government realized that they were basically funding their own competition. They're putting their own industry at risk by growing these other industries in France and Germany. And the government felt that was very short-sighted of the companies within Switzerland that to make money now were selling components to France and Germany and building up their industries. And then they saw the threat of the Americans and the Swiss government and Swiss watchmaking companies came together and uh, basically formed a cartel between the government and the watchmaking industry where they worked hand in hand together uh, to make sure that no watchmaking companies inside of Switzerland sort of went rogue and sold components to potential competitors. And what this meant for the Americans was that there was a tremendous push to uh, get more and more Swiss watches into America at lower and lower prices to undercut the American brands. And they're making a lot of headway with this uh, up until World War II. Uh, and the Americans still had about, in the American market, it was it was pretty close to half Swiss watches, half American watches. The Swiss figured out, well, we'll just start brands in America. We'll use imported parts from Switzerland and it'll serve the same purpose. So that's brands like Wittenauer from Longines, uh, Gruen, Bolova. All these companies were sort of Swiss shell companies inside the United States. So that was one way that the, the Swiss were chipping away at the American market. And then the big tragic one that uh, sort of broke their neutrality, during World War II, all US watch companies were forbidden to produce watches for the public. All the watch companies in the United States, the domestic watch companies had to make watches for the military. So not a single watch was being sold to the public for Hamilton, Elgin, Waltham, these three huge companies. During this time period, Switzerland's only customer uh, was the United States. They exported millions upon millions of watches outside of Switzerland. I don't know how they were getting the watches outside of Switzerland because they are surrounded by Germany. You can let your imagination explore that, that uh, answer. Um, able to export millions and millions of watches outside of Switzerland uh, and flooded the U.S. market. Uh, well, the U.S. couldn't produce any watches. So imagine if Tesla uh, was forbidden to make cars for five years. And in that time period, all these competitors come onto the market producing tons and tons of electric cars after five years, Tesla is going to be pretty far behind uh, everyone else. Uh, so after the war ended, uh, the United States was in huge trouble. They were behind. They were behind in technology, watch technology. Uh, the Swiss were able to produce watches at a lower price than the Americans. 
And then the Swiss really put the, the nails in the coffin by forbidding any sale of Swiss machinery, watchmaking machinery to the United States. Oh, uh, and they wow. did this on purpose to try to just completely decimate the American watchmaking scene. And it worked. 1945, World War II ended. By 1949, Waltham was out of business. Hamilton and Elgin had a basically a plummet uh, after this. Electric watches helped a little bit, but by the 1960s, the, the companies were completely dead. Uh, Hamilton was bought by the Swiss in 1969. Elgin uh, closed his doors in 1968, and they had been in a horrendous decline since the end of World War II. So the Swiss kind of focused all their energies on knocking out this market and they, you know, they took over the United States market completely. It was tremendous opportunity, a tremendous amount of money. You know, this is when the Speedmaster and Rolex really became popular in the United States. And you see with the, the vacuum of uh, American watches disappearing, you see Rolex and Omega make watches specifically geared for the American public, you know, first watch on the moon or the Rolex Daytona. And they kind of challenge channeled all this Americanism uh, in the void of American watchmaking companies disappearing. Um, and then I guess the, I guess, well, the Swiss were completely focusing on taking out the Americans. They didn't focus any energy on combating what the Japanese were doing. So while the Swiss were focused on the Americans, the Japanese just came in and uh, completely, uh, you know, caused the courts crisis and became the dominant uh, player in the watch market. Uh, so it's just kind of fascinating, all these like global mm. uh, power plays in the watch world and the geopolitics that were behind it and everything. I find it fascinating and tragic and, um, you know, I, it, it's nice though. It's really inspiring to see all these watch markets around the world pop up, um, and, uh, compete against the Swiss and watchmaking is so much more global now and independents are kind of leading this charge of bringing watchmaking back in countries all around the world. Um, but from the 1930s to the 1960s, the Swiss, uh, really fought against that and tried to keep a worldwide monopoly on watches and were pretty successful during that time period as well. Do you <clears throat> okay. Uh, you want to go first? Yeah. I, I have many questions, but I'll, for a time, I'll stick with one. Um, you did mention that during a period of uh, the time, uh, Swiss Switzerland stopped selling machines to um, the United States. And just, I was curious, um, would what at what point would you say like American watchmakers started producing their own machines, or is that a thing, or is is that what's happening now, or it never really happened? It was sort of the opposite. The Americans were producing their own machines uh, for a long time, and uh, World War II changed the United States economy, where all these machine builders that had been creating watchmaking machinery. Now there are all these other industries in the United States that those companies started focusing on. So it wasn't just 
like the machine makers that had been making watchmaking equipment were now making for for cars, for all these other industries, defense, many, many, many other industries. And uh, they weren't making watchmaking equipment anymore. So the big watch brands in the United States either had to make their own equipment or getting it from Switzerland. And the tools from Switzerland were very high quality, but um, they the, the Swiss wouldn't outright sell the United States any watchmaking machinery. They would, though, to their shell companies in the United States. So like most of the watchmaking machinery you see from the 50s and 60s in the United States all have Bolova on them because Bolova was a shell company uh, for the Swiss. Um, but Hamilton, Waltham, Elgin, they had a very difficult time getting any equipment from Switzerland, uh, period. Mm. I have a question that's more related to your brand, like currently. Um, you know how they yeah. say like history <laughs> repeats itself. Um, and then you being like a history buff and everything, do you kind of like apply some of the things that you have learned in history to how you're running your business now? Like in terms of like supply, how much you want to supply and mistakes that people used to make that you don't want to repeat. Yeah. So um, American companies were completely vertically integrated, mm -hmm. meaning that uh, like Waltham, Elgin, Hamilton, they would do everything in their own factory, um, which means they could completely control their supply chain. They could completely control their quality. Uh, the only thing the, the Americans were relying on were jewels. Uh, from Switzerland. Uh, and in World War II, they started producing those for themselves too. So that's what I've done here is I've tried to do everything vertically integrated. This is like, there are very few independents that do this. Um, like Roger Smith, Kari Wutzelainen are the famous ones, but this is like the Daniels method where it's in one workshop, you're trying to do everything. Uh, so that's, that was both inspiring to me that the Americans were doing this, um, but it's also very practical too. It means I'm not waiting on suppliers uh, from other countries for the vast majority of my components. I can do it all here. It took a long time to build up to that, but we're, we're very proud uh, that we're doing that. Mm. Mm. Jack, did you have more questions? Because I'm like sitting here as a like a listener, just enjoying all this. <laughs> like, so if you want to keep asking your question, I, I do have another question. Um, so with the brand Movado, I I haven't looked into the entire history, but I do um you know look up vintage Movados on Instagram or online, and some of them have Switzerland written in the bottom of the dial. But now Movado is an American brand. Are you aware Lana? of? Yeah. Uh, at least that's what I thought it was. Um, yeah, I, I know very little about Movado. It could be American owned. Like the, the people on the, the board uh, could be Americans, but I don't think they have any uh, manufacturing capabilities in the United States. Like it's all all done in Switzerland. Ah, uh, gotcha. Then f forget I said that. It was a brain for I for some reason I always thought now Movado, like since modern times have become like 
yeah, produced by American um, American soil, but um, it's okay. The Batoon, the independent brand, also had a lot of like American owners in it, but everything is in Switzerland. Yeah. Um, yeah. So wh okay. why? Yeah. Why do you yeah, think brands like Elgin, Hamilton, like? If, because uh, I'm just keep going back to what you said and what Dan said, like American watchmaking died and now is like revived. But do you think it really died? Like it truly died or it always was still living? It's just a lot of brands, American brands did not survive. But does that encompass the whole industry's death? Uh, no, the Americans died before the courts crisis. Um, like, uh, you know, we went from producing millions of mechanical time pieces to producing zero. Um, so that's pretty like dramatic, you know, Rolex survived through the courts crisis and continued to make mechanical watches throughout that period. Same with Omega. Omega may have changed hands, but like, there is a continuity there, especially with Rolex. Rolex, one of the reasons why they're the 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 leader in mechanical watchmaking is because they they never died. Mm -hmm. uh, they survived through. There was a complete continuity. Um, but uh, the American companies, the mechanical watchmakers, absolutely one hundred percent. Just the domestic production, like gone. Like the, the, the Waltham factory uh, is like high-end apartment buildings now. The, the Hamilton factory, the same thing. The Elgin factory was demolished in 1968. There are like famous pictures of the people of Elgin like upset watching as the, the factories crushed. So it wasn't like they were gone, gone. Um, like nothing left of them. Yeah. Okay. So the next part of your lecture was the American watch resurgence. So would you say your brand is part of that? I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. A small part of it. Um, there, there's a lot of really great people in the United States that are, are passionate about watchmaking. Very, very passionate. As there are a lot of independents all over the globe that are really excited to be doing watchmaking in their own countries. Like everything needed to make a watches in Switzerland. So any person that's trying to work outside of Switzerland uh, has an uphill battle to fight. Um, and it's a, just a very satisfying feeling when you can manufacture something <laughs> uh, sort of outside uh, of that influence. Mm. And so that, that's always been my dream was to make and produce extremely high quality watches here in California, here in Los Angeles. Mm. And uh, I know my watchmakers are super passionate about it too. And, you know, we really enjoy what we do and we're, we're very proud of the resurgence and everything that went into it. And the fact that nearly every component was made in our workshop and the standard of finish is extremely high. And we had, lots of aesthetic uh, innovations in it and was well-received. So we're, we're very, very happy. We're very pleased. And uh, we hope that other Americans are 
and independents all around the world are inspired to do something similar. I have a question about, uh, so again, your brand. Uh, what is the reason why you can customize so many things? For example, um, you have three options for the movements. You can like detach the lugs and then make it two-tone. Um, yeah. Why did you not think about just like, okay, I'm going to save these other two options for later models? Uh Maybe I'm a bad businessman. Maybe that's why. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't expecting that. Answer. Yeah, I mean, uh, if I was a good businessman, I'd make every every color change would yeah. be a new model uh, every year. Um, I'm gonna, yeah, because I actually <laughs> had this theory. I was thinking about this today, and I know I'm going to piss a lot of Americans off by saying this because I'm obviously I know nothing about your culture that well, but I was like okay, this could be like an American thing to have so many options. It's like fast food. Like you just like, uh, you could do a, or you could do B or you could do C. Like. No, it's, it's actually, it's actually a lot of independent collectors really love and appreciate uh, customization. Mm. Um, so like when you go to a big brand, there's no such thing as customizing. It's here are models. Here's what you get. Mm. You can personalize, you can engrave your name on a case back or something, mm -hmm. but you can't work with Rolex and say, you know, I'd like hands like this. And can you do yeah. this hue of color? And so one of the really special things about working like with an independent, you see Roger Smith, Kari Boutelain, and other yeah. independents do this that have the capabilities that you can really make the watch your own and you can work with me or work with mm -hmm. Kari or work with Roger and mm -hmm. build the watch together. And that's, mm. uh, so that's something very special. That's something that the big brands can't economically offer. Mm. Mm. So I've done the same thing with the resurgence. Um, and one of the reasons we're able to offer customers, even on the movement is mm. because we're vertically integrated. We're doing everything mm. in our own workshop. So like with the movement specifically, we have three different bridge layouts that you can choose from. And that's because Bridges are amorphous. You can change them without having to change the guts of the watch. The really difficult components to make in the watch are the unseen ones, are the ones that aren't easily visible. Like a, a component like a pinion is microscopic um, figuratively. It's it's tiny. It's tiny. It says pivots on it the size of, of your hair. So it's, it's a tiny component, extremely difficult to manufacture. Um, but that stays the same between the three movement versions. All the, the interior components of the movement are the same. So changing the bridge layouts, relatively speaking, isn't that difficult uh, since we're already doing all the hard labor of creating everything inside the watch. Okay. Mm. So I want to talk about your dials because you're pretty famous for your dials. Mm. So what, is, what are the secrets of making an engine turned dial. Why, why are they so cap more captivating than uh, the other finished ways that the dials are made? Yeah, I, I think the the appeal uh, and the romance of an engine turned dial is if someone's doing it by hand, they're sitting there on a hundred year old machine and the machine itself looks really cool and is interesting and has a lot of history behind it. And you're putting your life energy into creating the style one at a time. When you're on that machine, you're not 
mass producing 40 dials at a time. Like I talked about automatic methods before versus one at a time methods. Engine turning is very, very old school. Like me engine turning, like 90% of what I'm doing is similar to what someone would have been doing 300 years ago on the same machine. The machine doesn't have any electricity. You're operating it with your hand. Um, and it's just you and the machine working together to create these beautiful geometric patterns. So I think that's uh, a big appeal to it is the, the romance, the idea behind it. It's one at a time. It's very, very precise and we're pursuing perfection with it, but it's still handmade at the same time. Why is it that, maybe I'm wrong with this, yeah, but why is it that on your dials and on, on Kari dials, the Gillichet is so much deeper? Why can't they do that on the more serial manufactured dials? Is so it that they, they choose not to do it or they, yeah, like, because it is very distinctive. It just feels a lot deeper. Yeah, I mean, they absolutely can. Like uh, you can use very high-end uh, CNC machines to match a lot of the patterns we're doing. But the, the question is, I mean, you, first off, there are brands that do that. Like Patek Skiache is done on a CNC. But I don't think anyone buys that Patek with the CNC guilloche and looks at it and says, wow, this is fantastic guilloche. That's why I'm buying this piece. Like if the, the guilloche is CNC'd, like the, the romance behind it is gone and it's just purely for the pattern. And brands aren't so like proud of that. They're not like raising up their hands and shouting, look at this beautiful computer generated guilloche pattern. Um, because that's that's sort of breaking the uh, that's breaking the fantasy. That's breaking the the illusion of the artistic side of, of watchmaking. Um, and a lot of those watches are a lot of collectors think of them more as commodities as well or status versus people that can, can collect independence uh are thinking much more on the uh the art side of the timepiece mm. i wanted to ask um where where did the inspiration for the infinity weave come from yeah so there's a, a guilloche pattern called a basket weave and abraham louis Breguet made it famous uh, because it's very it's very pleasing uh, but also very difficult to do. It's one of the most difficult guilloche patterns out there, the basket weave, very famous pattern. You know, it's the intersecting lines. Yeah. So I thought, uh, you know, back in 2016, 2017, if I want to start a watch brand um, and guilloche is my thing right now, and I want to eventually get to the point where I can make the entire watch, I need to start somewhere. If I'm doing guilloche, I need to differentiate myself from someone else. Why don't I uh, figure out how to create a pattern? It's very, very difficult to do and kind of mind bending. And I can use that as a way to sort of catch attention. Uh, and so I kind of thought backwards like that. 
And so then I thought, sat down and thought of a lot of different patterns and tried a lot of different experiments. Mm. And the infinity weave was extremely challenging, mind bending, uh, and it looked cool. And it really, uh, it's sort of like a um, an Easter egg for people that like to loop or do macro photography, like seeing these tiny little baskets within baskets that they can only see with the, their loop or their macro equipment. Um, and thank God I was very lucky and the idea worked and the Infinity Series was popular and it did help me, you know, from there we started making our own cases. Mm. We also went hard mode with that and we did tantalum cases and there's a lot of appreciation for that. And then that allowed us to then do the next step, which was watch movements. Um, May yeah. I ask, like, this is the basket weave that you see on most brigades, but what is yeah. the guilloche that's in the center dial that you also see on most brigades, like these little dots? Is that also guilloche? Yes, it is. Yeah, that's called the, um, uh, the Swiss have a name for it, uh, but it's like a diamond pattern is what George Daniels calls it. It's the, the simplest of all the guilloche patterns uh, to do, but it's very pleasing. Uh, and we've done it before and do it on some of our watches. Mm. Gotcha. So, so I want to ask, um, you mentioned tantalum in the case. It's, you know, quite well known that it's quite difficult to machine. Um, but also, you know, you talk about these different patterns being, you know, differing in complexity. Sorry, but what makes it so difficult? Like, how can you, like... To me, I just see a pattern. Why is it that this pattern is more difficult than this this other pattern? Um, so to get these patterns are um, are mathematical equations essentially. Um, um, so to you have like an x and a y point. Uh, whenever you're, it's like a coordinate plane, and you. Have, of an X and a, and a Y and uh, very simple patterns like the diamond pattern are a straight line crossed with another straight line, right? That's one way to do it. Uh, another way to do it is just to do a zigzag and then it's phased to match up with the other zigzag. So you're making a pattern where it's alternating uh, zigzags. But to, to do something like a basket weave, it needs to be phased and the um, the pattern itself needs to be divided into sections. And then to do the infinity weave, you have to figure out how to fit smaller baskets within another size square. So the, the math gets more complex, which means how you're moving the machine after each and every single cut also gets more complex, like there's a lot more steps. And then when you're making these tiny, tiny cuts, like with the infinity weave, we're only able to do like one tiny basket at a time. Otherwise it would go into the big basket. So it means we're doing like microscopic tiny cuts. And if we slip, we go into the big pattern and wreck it. Um, in my video at the Horological Society of New York, The Secrets of Horological Engine Turning, I go into depth on how I do the infinity weave. For people mm -hmm. that's listening, it's 
it was even more boring than my history talks <laughs> explaining all the the math I, and, I, th I, I thought we took a right turn into a maths class i have to be honest yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's definitely not my specialty but um yeah okay um we, i want to talk about other finishing which is the damaskining you do uh, as opposed to Cote de Genève. Could you give us some background on where this technique came from and why you chose to use it? Yeah, sure. So uh, watches used to uniformly have uh, a matte finish to them. Um, you'll see almost all watches prior to 1860, 1870, all had uh, basically like a, a matte finish or like a, a grained finish uh, look to them. And then from the 1870s onwards, they started experimenting with um, doing different patterns. So originally, you, you see all these wavy patterns or straight line patterns. Uh, and eventually, the Americans sort of adapted doing dem damascening, which are like curvy line um, patterns on their movements. They're not engraved, but they're um, they're what's a good way to describe it? They're basically like you're rubbing the material and you're creating like uniform rubbed marks mm. on the the back of the movement. Mm. The Swiss uh, basically stuck with doing straight lines, Côte de Genève. Côte de Genève was just a, a type of damascening. Uh, a type of this pattern where you're rubbing patterns onto the back of the movement. And the Americans stuck with doing all these wavy patterns. Mm -hmm. um, though they would also do what we would call Coach de Genève as well. It was just a, a form of a form of damascening. Um, but when the American companies disappeared and pocket watches became less popular, what we call damascening, which is doing curvy lines or more organic shapes, just completely disappeared. Um, the only brand I've seen do anything like damascening in the last 70, 80 years is uh, Alonga Zone. On some of their watches, they have a little bit of uh, damascening. Uh, so I love this technique because um, we were able to do it on our engine turning machines. So we're using our engine turning machines to create guilloche-like shapes, but instead of cutting the material, we're just rubbing the material. And so it was a way to bring back damascening, but use our engine turning machines and kind of take damascening to a new level. Um, and that's that's one of my favorite parts about having this business is rediscovering old arts, and figuring out how to do them and then uh, making them our own as well. And the damascening, we were so, so, so happy with how it turned out. Our plates are raw German silver. And uh, the damascening almost has like a rainbow effect on it or refracts the light really beautifully. And uh, it's endless, the patterns we could do, just like Guilloche we could have endless patterns of movement decorations. Um, yeah. So that's is, really that, cool. is, that, is that something you've like purposely incorporated to also give a nod to the American watchmaking kind of side of your brand? 
Oh yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, it's also though, it's, it's also using our guilloche machines too. So it's sort of in line with that. It's sort of utilizing those machines in a, in a very different way. Hmm. Um, and just, I, I, I think objectively, uh, it's a lot more, more interesting, uh, complex and appealing to the eye, uh, than coach Geneva. I think coach Geneva is also beautiful. It's just, uh, um, it's been used so much and so consistently for the last 80, 90 years. It's fun to do uh, something uh, very different. Hmm, very fair. Um, and is there anything else, you know, that marks Josh Shapiro watches, apart from that skinning American, like other American touches, flourishes perhaps that you incorporate in your watch? Or do you, is it mostly customization? Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, the customization isn't uh, an American. Like Hamilton, Waltham, Elgin, like they didn't customize. Wa they just mass produced millions of watches. Uh, the customization thing is much more us being an independent than American. The damascening is one thing. Um, being a vertically integrated company is another, but that's not necessarily American. Like that's what George Daniels became famous for is doing everything in his own workshop. So that was more my goal is like the, the pinnacle of being an independent is bringing everything underneath one roof. Like many independents and many other brands, like an in-house movement doesn't mean they actually made it in their own house. It just means proprietary. It means they designed this movement and they outsourced it to a bunch of subcontractors. That's what in-house really means in the watchmaking world at large. There are very few brands that are actually manufacturing parts in their own workshop. So that was immensely important to us. But mm. back to your original question, I guess the only other thing that's like a nod to American watches and pocket watches is on our wheels. We make our wheels out of rose gold and um, wheels usually are either flat grained uh, or polished. And if they're flat grained, like the highest end brands will put uh, chamfers on the inside of the spokes of their wheels. Um, but the Americans did something different, which I always thought was super beautiful. The spokes of the wheels uh, are rounded, sort of mm -hmm. like the arms of a tourbillon carriage. Mm. And so we've done that in the wheels of the resurgence, these rose gold wheels. All the arms on the spokes of the wheels are rounded and polished, uh, just like the arms of a tourbillon. And uh, so that's a, a nod to American watchmaking. And I, once again, it's a different look. It gives the wheels a much more three-dimensional feel. Uh, it's a detail that people can appreciate looking through a loop. And it, it's something we're really proud of. Mm. And then we went all out on our anglage too. Uh, I've got some extremely talented watchmakers uh, that have incredible skills and, you know, our anglage, we're really proud of it. We feel it's at the highest of levels. Um, we really try to create a watch that in every way could compete with the best watches in the world, um, both from aesthetic point of view, from a manufacturing point of view, from a technical point of view. Yeah. 
Okay. Well, um, well, that episode went fast. I think we might have to get you back on for a second episode. I mean, just for the history <laughs> lesson. Yeah. It was uh, very fascinating. Well, both parts were very fascinating. Mm -hmm. And you went into real great depth to explain everything concisely as well. Clearly an educator. But um, it's time for you to ask us a question in the reverse around. Okay. So what would you like to ask? Uh uh Jacqueline what is uh your least favorite watch <laughs> it's so nice that someone's asking that for once yeah because everyone's always like what's your favorite watch yeah, and it's just exactly. such a like such a yeah out, yeah oh I feel like like I've answered this uh, maybe like privately amongst the three of us <laughs> No, maybe do it publicly public. now. Maybe publicly. Are we uh, roasting the tag lawyer again? No. I feel like Lola might know what I'm. Yeah. I'm. I've just never been a fan of the Tiger or the Leopard Daytona. Uh, the Tiger. I think it's a Tiger. Um, the, it, the Tiger is the one that like came out in like. 2019 roughly no, no no that one is actually cool the new tiger is yeah. actually pretty cool i've never been yeah. a of, like the old oh originally when it was more print and more it was more flat yeah and yeah. very orangey and yeah okay yeah that one um i feel like that's kind of relevant given the new uh rolex news in the in the mm. media these days but just off the top of my head maybe that one okay all right good answer <laughs> we looked it up <laughs> yeah i, I the old one. Um, the old one not the new one the, the new one. ones are, are nicer the new one is so nice yeah. yeah okay um okay daniel doing this yeah. podcast What's the most unexpected thing anyone's ever said to you? Uh, God, oh my that's God, hard. these questions are so good. What's the most unexpected thing? Glad I you hard. got you gave me that question because this is this one is hard. Yeah, this was really hard. Uh, <laughs> man, most unexpected thing. The question probably you just asked me. Like most, <laughs> yeah. no, I have to, like most of the time you get these questions which i think people listening and the girls know i'm pretty quick to answer but you really stumped me with that one because i haven't i can't even remember when there was a time where i had to really really think of uh or i felt uncomfortable answering a question but i can't yeah so i can't i think definitely the question you just asked was it's a bit of a stumper i didn't expect that one at all it's difficult yeah <laughs> He's Should a different question, guys. <laughs> I'm getting nervous. I feel like yeah, right. Getting you getting nervous worse. now, right? <laughs> thank you, just... Josh. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for your time. <laughs> uh, uh, Lung what's your favorite watch that Daniel and Jacqueline own? Oh, that's so. That's, that's easy. Uh... That's yeah, you did her. Okay, yeah, that's yeah. easy. Okay, for Dan, it's the Movado, and for Jacqueline, it's the five zero zero four. 
Mm. Uh, yeah. 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 Should I ask a different <laughs> question for, for Daniel? Yeah. Okay, wait, I can tell you something that's really bizarre that happened that both these guys don't know regarding the last question. Okay, we had a guest on recently and it was a uh, um he was an expert in a brand that I think amongst the three of us, Jacqueline is most into. Uh, like I can't give it away because that's the name of his username actually <laughs> okay anyways so this guy um we recorded and he forgot I was on the podcast by the way I was in the screen this whole time for this one hour and I think it's the way he pinned the zoom meeting it looked like there was only Jacqueline Dan and him mm-hmm. and then so he goes to this event in Malaysia and uh in singapore actually and he bumped into my friend who's not a watch person but who's just attending this event and um my friend's like hey you were just on my friend's podcast blah 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 blah. and then he was like she was there (laughs) (laughs) and i was like no so that was that's definitely like the most bizarre thing that's happened to me throughout like this like two to three years of doing this Wait, uh, I didn't know. I didn't know that that happened. I knew that she, your friend, yeah. with this guest, and yeah. asked for a, s- a photograph or something. But I didn't yeah. know the second part. That's why <laughs> he's probably listening. Yeah. To this. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, he's definitely listening. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Hi. <laughs> Send it's love. A very twenty-first uh, century uh, Zoom. Uh, yeah. Zoom Were you problem. really quiet yeah. during that episode? Maybe his yeah, for thing sure. was like, oh, the person who's speaking is on the screen, you know? Yeah, no, but there's always, um, there's all, I think in the history of us doing this, there's two, t- two times we're quiet. Either, I think <laughs> this is one of those episodes where we're trying to remember and understand things. So we're all really quiet. Um, yeah. And then the other times is when it's um, like a brand or a topic that we're all a bit like, just not really like either don't understand enough so we're just yeah just quiet there's another scenario long where the guest can't stop speaking and we're quiet that's that's a third third scenario scenario. there's no way we can get a get a question in or anything in there's just no pause okay do do you know how like um scared josh feels right now he's like which category am i (laughs) yeah first one definitely the latter first one honestly definitely the first one we recently had on a guest (laughs) no one's ever gonna come on again and then i got some dms i was like oh wow talk so (laughs) of our of our listeners like wow that was uh that was a tough one to get through <laughs> uh people are just very passionate like uh watchmakers people in the business yeah yeah, yeah. They love what right they do, thank god yeah we, we go on to it. the uh last round josh um pretty light-hearted nothing like the stumpers you just gave us but uh <laughs> here we go right number one as a historian aside from american horological history what other parts of history interest you and why Ooh. Wow, that is a stumper. Nice. That's a good one. Hey, nice. Uh so I took a lot of Asian history classes. Um that was a huge passion. Japan, China, um, did a lot of history courses in that. Uh the American Civil War 
Mm. And then my master's thesis was on a guy named Mo Berg. He was, uh, he was this brilliant guy who spoke 10 different languages, but he, uh, he was a professional baseball player. Uh, and during World War II, uh, he stopped playing baseball and uh, he joined an organization that was a precursor to the CIA. And he went throughout Italy, France, and into Switzerland, uh, trying to figure out how far the Germans were on their atomic bomb project. Um, uh-huh. And uh, it's just a super fascinating guy and spoke all these languages. He was like precursor to James Bond, except he was like a real person. And it was just a really amazing thesis to write on. Okay. Yeah. Right. Number two, um, what was your favorite childhood game? Ooh, like video game? Uh, it can be a game? video game. Yeah, it can be a video game. You can mention Tony Hawk's if you want. <laughs> uh, well, that's a, that's, this is a stumper. This is a good one. Uh, um, I really loved, there's a game for the Super Nintendo. All before yep. your your time. Uh, no, it isn't, but I know. Yeah, go on. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles: Turtles in Time was an amazing game. Uh, a lot of Super Mario World, um, Starcraft. Uh, oh, I, I, I love Starcraft. I love 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 Starcraft. I just oh, love yeah. Starcraft. Fan. Oh, Starcraft. Because yeah, I can't find anyone that will play it now. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, I played Starcraft. Okay. Starcraft Two. All Blizzard games, wonderful company. Right, the next one. Uh, what's your favorite ice cream flavor? These are hard. Yeah. These are That's super hard, hard, man. It would be hard if you're long, long. Well, yeah, these are actually really hard. Yeah. Yeah. Mint chocolate chip. Yeah, I just had that in my mind. Oh, my yeah. God. Yes, it's mine as well. Mint but chocolate chip. My friends, none of my friends sure. like it. Yeah, it's I, gross. I like it. I think it's, it's such like, a classic. I think it's toothpaste. classic. Uh, yeah, toothpaste. They all say it tastes like toothpaste. <laughs> <laughs> okay, next one. The last movie or box set you watched? Uh, last movie. Actually, I went with uh, my kids to see the the recent Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie. That's oh, quite uh, good. Is it good? It was. It was really good, and. Seth Rogen like made it with like in mind that parents would go watch that were like a fans of the original TV show uh, and movie. So there's oh, so many little like Easter, Easter eggs, eggs from yeah. the the original Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle movies. So like I loved it, my kids loved it. It was like modern and retro at the same time. It was it was a masterpiece. <laughs> <laughs> What's yeah, the latest movie that you guys have watched? Oh, good question. I don't even remember. I rewatched I rewatched the Green Green Book, is it? <gasps> oh my god, one of my favorite movies ever. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The Green Book. I, I re that. I just put that on and I just like that. I thought it was yeah. really good. Mm. It's yeah. so good. Yeah. Um right. Next one. Uh I've got two more for you. Uh, this has become somewhat of a staple question for us, but 
where are you in the US, Josh? And what is the signature food from your area that, you know, if someone was visiting, they should try? Wow. In and out. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I was just like in and out for sure. Uh, yeah, I'm from Los Angeles. Uh, I'm in Los Angeles. And uh, I eat kosher now, but when I wasn't, I used to always go to in and out if you're, you're going to come to California, uh, they make incredible food. Yeah. In and out for sure. Okay. And the last one to finish off, uh, can you name one up and coming American watchmaker beside yourself that deserves more attention for the work they're doing? Ooh, this is a great question. Um, I guess there's uh, uh, there's Nick Harris with Orion watches. He does really beautiful, very slim uh, diver watches. Really, really incredible work. Another one is Darren Tiffany, who is very creative and does a lot of manufacturing himself. Um, does beautiful work. Um, so definitely those two uh are are worth checking out and are doing exciting things okay great well that ends the podcast i really do think we need you back on again and maybe jack <laughs> can do the questions next time it's been a pleasure having you on and i think just uh, i just love history you know it's just full of stories but it's yeah so great to have you on i was just in capture from minute one uh, yeah I you enjoyed that guys ask great questions it's a lot of fun <laughs> yeah so I, know uh, podcasts. I think this is this is the most enjoyable uh, oh wow thank you so much uh, Whoa. Oh, like, you just made just, my day there yeah, yeah. <laughs> let me just send that out to all the other podcasts yeah. <laughs> along make sure make sure you put yeah. that as the title as the quote. Yeah. yeah yeah as the yeah. title yeah josh said this is the best podcast ever yeah <laughs> right yeah. I might have yeah. said the other podcast though if you guys yeah. broadcast that too much. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. And then side note, he also makes watches. Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, we'll see you guys on the next one. Thank you for tuning in. See ya. Bye. Bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you. As always, thank you for listening to the waiting list podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have. And if you have any questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to reach out to us at The Waiting List Podcast on Instagram or via our private accounts. We'll see you on the next one. Bye. Bye. Bye.